Many of you may know the name David Livingston, and some of you may not. A very famous missionary back in the 1800s. He has been called the greatest African missionary, I think Africa's greatest. He was a medical doctor, an evangelist, a, a surveyor, a map maker. He accomplished a lot of things in his lifetime. But one of his biographers shares uh, an interesting story about him as a little boy in the early 1800s, growing up in England, and it was in the day when uh, lamp lighting was just becoming a thing. So street lamps, not like street lamps we have today, electric or uh, solar powered or even gas line powered, before that day, a lamp lighter would literally walk through the villages with a ladder crawl up the lamp and light one by one by one the lamps throughout the village, the first advent of gas lamps in the villages. So as a little boy, uh, the story's told that he's sitting, looking out the window, looking at the darkness, and watching the lamplighters coming down the street, and one by one, a couple of them on either side of the street, are lighting lamp after lamp after a lamp. And little David Livingston cries out to his mom. He's like, Mommy, Mommy, look! They're punching holes in the darkness. (laughs) Punching holes in the darkness. It's actually a really good line that would be a good summary to what Peter calls us to in this book of 1 Peter, that we get the privilege in, as part of God's family, to punch holes in the darkness, to live lives that will glorify God and that will bring light into the world that we live in. Uh, So the previous weeks, uh, we have finally finished the introduction The first 12 verses, which basically called us to rejoice in our identity in Jesus Christ, a new family identity. Uh, You who are elect exiles, we're told there in verse 1, who have been called by God, chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, have been called to this born-again relationship into a living hope, a guaranteed inheritance, and a secure salvation. So we've spent three weeks digging into those truths that are, uh, that are ours in Christ. And now in classic New Testament fashion, Peter takes what we know to be true about ourselves and then begins to apply it in practical knowledge. In other words, so take what you believe, these first 12 verses, and now let it shape how you live your life. In other words, Peter begins to talk about what does it look like to live as a Christian? Or you might say to live Christianly. What is that going to look like? And actually, that's the whole rest of the book. It's practical application of these first 12 verses. So if the first 12 verses told us these things are true about you, these next nine verses will tell us these things should be true about you. The first 12, these things are true about you as a child of God. Now, some other things should be true about you as you apply these into your life. And and as I said, it's really going to intro the whole rest of the book. He talks about what life in the family of God looks like, or in other words, how our family lives. So I, I put it this way. Because of our new relationship, we have new responsibilities. Because of the new relationship that we have looked at in those first 12 verses, because you have been adopted into the family of God, you have a new identity, you are now children of God, children of God through obedience of faith, what's what we looked at and we were told, we're called to live like Jesus, to emulate him, to, uh, to imitate him in our daily lives. So you've heard all the phrases like father like son, she is her mother's daughter, or, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, so those ideas that... Kids end up growing up looking like their parents and acting like their parents, right? It's scary when you get old enough to go, oh my goodness, I've become my father. I remember as a kid, dad going through the house, shutting off every light in the house, and we as kids would, of course, go back and turn them all on. And at about 35, I realized, oh my goodness, I've become my father. 
as I'm going through the house going, don't these kids know how to turn off the lights and clicking off all the lights? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Peter's basically been telling us you have been born into a new way of life. And the text that we're going to look at this weekend is really quite simple. Three things that are needed for us to live like Jesus. And actually, these themes will be carried on through the rest of the book. So living like Jesus means these three things, that we're going to guard our minds, we're going to change our behavior, and we need to grow our awe. Didn't quite know how to phrase that, and we'll get there. But guard your minds, change your behavior, and grow our awe. So read with me. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, just the first verse in our text. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing Peter says to these people is guard your mind, or in other words, how you think matters. How you think matters. What goes on in your mind, what you put in your mind, what you ponder with your mind truly matters. Three actions in this section. Prepare your minds, be sober, and set your hope or set your mind, in other words, fully on the grace that is to be yours. But those three actions all roll into one main verb. It's the the third verb in that sentence is actually the main verb. To set your hope, set your mind fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus. And those other two are just modifiers of the main verb. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So we're going to look at those. Prepare your mind for action. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. Some of your translations, some of your Bibles that you got with you will say, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. What does gird up the loins of your mind? Like, I don't wear a girdle. Not quite sure what loins are. Sounds kind of personal and intimate. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that. But it's an image that the early readers would have known. In the first century, the picture of men, just like the women who wore dresses, the men wore long tunics, long shirts, robes. What you see in the Middle East, even today in some countries, was was the, the typical dress in first century, ancient Middle East, that men wore these long shirts. So Running or working with those robes, with the fabric flapping around your feet, was impossible. And so a man would roll up the robe and tuck it into his belt. And in an effect, then it becomes a miniskirt, right? And he's able to do his work. He's able to run. And so there's several examples of this. Uh, Elijah, if you remember the story of Elijah with the confrontation of uh, the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel... And at the end of it, he has a confrontation with King Ahab. And Ahab takes off in his chariot. And we're told that Elijah tucks his garments up into his belt. And he takes off running. And he literally outruns the chariot. He's running so fast. Well, he couldn't have run unless he had tucked that robe up in. If he had, uh, you know, girded, girded up the loins of his mind. Get prepared to run or work. Tuck in that tunic so that you don't trip. Uh, there, there's modern equivalents of this. We might say uh, tie up your laces, roll up your sleeves. Uh, I learned something a few years ago. Uh, as a father of two daughters, I had the privilege of visiting every bridal shop in the Lower Mainland, twice. And as we went from wedding gown shop to wedding gown shop to wedding gown shop to wedding gown shop, there's like 500 of them. And viewing thousands of wedding dresses, at least it seemed like that we viewed thousands of them, I learned some things about wedding dresses. First of all, they're all very expensive. Uh, But secondly, there's some unique features that they're putting into wedding dresses these days. I had not a clue. 
Did you know that there are some wedding dresses that now come equipped with buttons or uh, hoops or uh, hooks of some sort that that bride can actually tuck that dress up and make it a shorter dress so that if she wants to get out on the dance floor with her dance party, with the bridal party, she won't be tripping all over that gown. Who knew? It's exactly this image, girding up the loins of your mind, shortening the skirt so that you can run, so that you can work. So what Peter is saying, metaphorically, is make sure that your mind is in order, that you can act wisely and decisively. Okay, then the second metaphor modifies the first as well. Be sober-minded, be self-control. Uh, we understand this one really easily. Uh, it, it's used in our modern language as well. When somebody is not in control of their senses, we'll call them drunk. We use it literally, whether some kind of prescription drug, alcohol, it's illegal to operate a vehicle when you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Why? Because you are not in control. You're not in control of your actions. You're under the influence of your, your drunk. So in other words, to be sober-minded is to be sober in your thinking, to be clear-minded. Uh, we use it metaphorically, uh, too. The, uh, you, have you heard the phrase drunk with love? Like out of your mind with love? You know, it, it's when you're so twitterpated. You're not thinking straight. You do things and you say things that you wouldn't normally. You're, you're somehow out of control. And so Peter's challenge to his readers is stay clear-minded. And he will use this word sober two more times in this book. We'll come back to them. In, in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near, so keep a clear mind so that you can pray well. You're living in the end times. You're looking forward to the coming of Christ. The end of all things is near. Be sober-minded. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, you have an enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's coming after you, so be sober-minded. Be clear-minded so that you can stand up against the enemy of your soul. So, in other words, to get to the point, okay, I will, get to the point. The mind of the believer is a theme that comes up all the way through the New Testament, and it's incredibly important. Our minds. Romans 12, verse 2, very famous text. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, and, and perfect. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but allow the Holy Spirit to transform your mind, to shape what you think about. Uh, Jesus, in talking about the mind and the starting point for right living, said this in Matthew 15. He's like, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, uh, and the heart is used in the, the same sense of the, the inner man or the mind as well. And this defiles a person. It comes from inside of us. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Now, in that context, they were talking about dietary laws and could they eat certain foods because the Jewish law had all these dietary laws. And Jesus was like, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth is actually revealing what's in your heart. What you speak reflects what you think about. So long before you murder someone, you have thought, hateful thoughts. Long before you have lied, you have thought about lying. Uh, you think about adultery before you commit adultery. And you could 
play it into all of these thoughts. In other words, uh, like one of my profs at Bible school used to say, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Whatever you focus on in your heart, eventually it will come out in your actions and how you speak. And so just watch a person's life and you can tell where their heart is focused, where their mind is focused. So what Peter's getting at here is really basic. What you fill your mind with is going to affect how you live. It just makes common sense. So you ask yourself some questions. What are you listening to? Who are you talking to? What are you reading? What are you filling your mind with? Uh, It's one of the dangers of social media. So the internet has brought us incredible advantages in the generation we live in and a lot of dangers. And so if you're a parent or if you're on social media at all, but particularly if you're a parent of, of youth or young adults, you need to be aware. So watch this movie. I would encourage it, challenge you to watch this movie, The Social Dilemma, that talks about the danger of the echo chamber that is literally built into the internet system to keep us locked into a system of echoing, that you only get the news and only the stories that are are designed precisely for you and to keep you locked into that little world. It's a challenging read, challenging listen, rather. But the question is this, what are you filling your mind with? What is it that you daydream about, that you allow your mind to think on? What is it that's driving you? And then on the other hand, we could put it positively, what are you putting priority time and places into your schedule for positive inputs. Where is it that you're literally programming in your week? Here are the places where I'm going to get some positive input. I'm going to spend some time in the Word with the Lord, with my Bible and my cup of coffee as I start out my day. I'm going to gather with people in a community group and open the Bible. I'm going to attend a service. I'm going to listen to some music. I'm going to read some books. Where is it that you're putting priority time and places to fill your mind with positive thoughts? Okay, the first command, guard your mind because how you think matters. The second one is this, change your behavior because how you live matters. Peter says to these people, how you think matters, and then he goes on to say how you live matters. So if you read on in your text, as obedient children, verse 14 to 16, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He calls us to change our behavior. And he puts it in a negative and a positive. First, he's like, as you understand your new identity as children of God, as called, as as called to this living hope, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that you stop doing. Don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, there should be some things that Christians say no to. Because we're believers, because we're followers of Jesus, things that we used to do that we no longer do. And Peter will come back to this very explicitly in chapter 4 when he says there in chapter 4, 1 to 3, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Now listen to this next phrase. For the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You're like, stuff like that's in the Bible? Yeah, it is. And what Peter is saying is, in essence, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. 
There's been enough time in your past to live like the world around you lives. You, you've lived in this ignorant way of living before, and now it's time to move on from that. Uh, but notice in verse 14 that it was like you didn't know any better because it says the passions of your ignorance. You didn't know better, and you didn't have the power to live a different life. A similar theme in Ephesians 4. Paul writing, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, here's the key phrase, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. You used to live like this in ignorance with a hard heart. But now you're children of God. Now you have been called to him. You've been adopted. You've been chosen by God. You've been called to him. And so now the spirit lives in you, and now you know better. So in other words, you will stop doing some things you used to do, things that were destroying your life, things that you would look back on now and you were like, I was powerless. I was out of control. I I couldn't stop it, but it was ruining my life. It was destroying me. And now you have a new power because the spirit lives within you. So you walk away from some things. But secondly, you add some things. As we understand our new identity in Jesus, he says, be holy as God is holy. Uh, Verse 16, he had said that. Now, that word holy is an interesting word. It's a little bit of a churchy word. Uh, If you've been in church any length of time, of course, you hear it all the time. If you're reading the Bible, you see it all the time. We sing about it. We talk about it. But out on the street, I wonder what the average person on the street would, would say if you ask them the question, what does it mean to be for something to be holy? They might think uh, something churchy, something sacred, who knows? But the word is interesting. Uh, The Old Testament word simply means to be set apart, or literally an apartness, a separateness, or an otherness. And the New Testament is very similar. It uses a, a Greek word, but it means to be set apart, or sacred, or worthy of honor. So in other words, holy designates something that is in a separate category unto itself. It it is set apart. It it is different from other things. Literally, that word other is what holy means. A separation from sin or evil. And so we think of the holiness of God, his sinlessness, and also it designates a sense of otherness or difference, a distinction from. In fact, the word holy is, is like it's other, other, other. There's no word to describe God because he is completely other. He is completely separate. He is completely transcendent. Apart from us, we don't have a word to understand him. So it's holy, 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 or other, 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 apart, apart, apart. That's what the word means. It's interesting that holy is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. We don't say loving, 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 or merciful, 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 or any of his other attributes, but holy, holy, holy is repeated in both the Old and the New Testament. It's like he is completely other. He is completely other. He is completely other. We cannot understand him. He is beyond our comprehension. He is set apart from us. So his holiness refers to the otherness of God. And as God is holy, as God is separated from stuff, we are called to be like him. And to pursue a sense of being set apart unto God and from the world. So Leonard Ravenhill says this. The greatest miracle 
that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world, make that man holy, and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Let me say it again. The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy and then put him back into the unholy world and keep him holy in it. That's a miracle, is it not? And it's a very important thought, and we'll come back to it throughout this text, because we are not called to exit the world. We're not called to, when, when we talk about being separate from or being apart from or uh, being other than the world, it doesn't mean that we live in bubble-wrapped lives or in a Christian ghetto of some sort, that we exit from the world. It's impossible for us to exit the world. We live in the world. And God calls us to himself. He creates us as holy men and women of God and then sends us back into this world to do what? To punch holes in the darkness is why he sends us back out. As children of God, our behavior will change. No question. Okay, finally, we also have to grow our awe. I didn't quite know how to say this. Thought it through this week. I'm like, how do you put this to a phrase? But so this is what you get then. We need to grow our awe, our sense of awe. Because how we understand God matters. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Right there's the key word. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter says we need to fear God. Uh, It's an echo to Proverbs 1 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we need to understand that word fear and what it means. Every parent, every grandparent spends time explaining it to their kids that there's two types of fear. There's a good fear and then there's a bad fear perhaps. There's a fear that's like a terror. And what what Peter is referring to here is not the terror like, you know, Monsters Incorporated. When the monsters come into your room at night and they make you scream and they capture the, uh, the terror, it's not that. Uh, I remember this as a kid. So seven kids, so we had to share bedrooms. So I was in the bedroom with my two older brothers, a bunk bed and a single bed. I had the lower bunk. My two older brothers decided to inform me that there was a tiger that lived under my bed. The tiger only came out at night. I couldn't see him during the day, so don't bother looking during the daytime because he's not there during the day. He's only there at night. And if you get out of bed, the tiger's going to eat you. So as a little kid, I learned that if I stood on the very edge of my bunk bed and clung to the top rung and then jumped as far as I could and hit the ground running, that the tiger never caught me. There was a little bit of terror in that time of my life. That's not what Peter's talking about. There is a fear, on the other hand, that refers to a reverential sense of awe. It's being in the presence of something huge or weighty or powerful. And if you think through your life experiences, there are times in your life where you stood in awe. And then as you began to reflect on it, you're like, oh my goodness, I have just been overwhelmed with beauty or with power or whatever it might be. It's like the first time that you stand on the edge of Niagara Falls. The first time you look over the edge of the Grand Canyon. 
The first time you're standing on top of that 14,000-foot peak that you finally made it to the top of. Or it's walking into the great cathedrals that were literally designed to create a sense of awe, to lift our eyes up. Or holding a newborn child. Or the first time when you're out on the prairies and you see the northern lights. And you're overwhelmed with this sense of awe. And rightfully, this sense of awe is how we understand our awesome God. We understand how powerful and loving and kind he is. And and while all those things are true, the text highlights something very significant and specifically God's judgment and God's love. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. So judgment is a topic we've got to talk about. Judgment is taught all the way through the Bible and very clearly in the New Testament. Uh, Revelation 20 says that there's going to be a day when we stand before a great white throne, believers and unbelievers alike. Every person who has ever lived will stand before this throne, and there's going to be a book that's opened, and that book has names written down, and if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, we're told, then you spend eternity with God. And if your name is not written in that book, you spend eternity banished from the presence of God. Matthew 25 carries a very similar thought, that the nations will be gathered before the Lord, and he will separate individuals like sheep and goat, the goats to one side, the sheep to the other side. Acts 17, Paul is trying to explain God to the Athenians. And he says, this God commands that all men everywhere repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of course, that man he's referring to is Jesus, that Jesus will ultimately judge us. 2 Corinthians 5, here speaking specifically to believers. And it says, for we must all appear, speaking to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in that context, it says we're not judged here based on for salvation. We're, based, we're, we're judged here for rewards, degrees of rewards for how you have lived your life on earth. And as believers, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment, that we stand before God and he rewards us for our lives here on earth. Now, this is an interesting subject. Because over in chapter 3, verse 14, if you just flip over there, you'll see it says, uh, well, verse 13 and 14, now there's no harm to you if you're zealous for what is good. And then it goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be afraid of humans. Don't be afraid of men and women. Don't be afraid of man. But then verse, chapter 1, verse 17 says, but you should fear the Lord. I think we often get this backwards. Instead of fearing God, and we should, we actually fear man. And Peter tells us the exact opposite. You should have no fear of any other human court of appeal. And even if you suffer, don't fear what man will do to you. Instead, you should fear God. And so we hold this intention, his holiness and his goodness. And I love the conversation in Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, witch, and wardrobe. Lucy, when she's beginning to hear about this great lion, the king of Narnia called Aslan, and her eyes get big and she begins to ask the question, she says to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Is he safe, this lion and this king? And the beaver answers this way, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. This tension of the awesome powerfulness of our God, the judgment that we will stand before him, and yet that he is good and he is loving and he is kind. And so we stand before him in awe, not just because he's our judge, but read on because of his love toward us. So if we finish out the paragraph, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Know this, that you were ransomed, not with silver and gold, but with precious blood. Rightly fearing God means we stand in, in, in light of this awe of God, not a terror, but an awe, a deep and reverential awe, because we know that one day he is going to judge the world. But secondly, because he is the one who loved the world at such a terrible price. 1 John 3 reminds us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Some translations say has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. That we're overwhelmed and we're in a sense of awe that God could love us this much. Ephesians 1, a very similar thought. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. That God, if we read this text correctly, where we began those first 12 verses, that literally in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, he knew of us. He foreknew us. He loved us. He set his affections on us. That God had you in his mind before the earth was formed. Is that not awesome? The answer is yes. All of you on video, no one here said amen. I know you all said amen on video. Rightly fearing God, because he will judge, but also because the awesomeness of his love toward us. The price that was paid was what? His atoning death. Precious blood, he says. Not an afterthought, but planned before the foundation of the world. 1 Corinthians 6, our response. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now look at this phrase. You're not your own. This body of yours is no longer your own, child of God. Because you were bought with a price, a high price, precious blood, so glorify God in your body. You see, we need to cultivate this deep sense of awe as we approach our God. I want to read a a little paragraph or two from Matt Redman. He wrote a couple years ago or a few years back on the sense of the otherness of God and the holiness and the awe that we should have toward God. So Redman, of course, is a musician. We've sung many of his songs over the years, and he says this, worship thrives on wonder. We can admire, appreciate, and perhaps even adore someone without having a sense of wonder, but we can't worship without wonder. For worship to be worship, it must contain something of the otherness of God. I've come to love that word, otherness. It is such a great worship word. Otherness. 
gives us a sense that God is so pure, matchless, and unique that no one else and nothing else even comes close. He is altogether glorious, unequaled in splendor, and unrivaled in power. He's beyond the grasp of human reason. Far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind, he's inexhaustible, immeasurable, unfathomable, eternal, immortal, invisible. The highest mountain peaks and the deepest canyon depths are just tiny echoes of his proclaimed greatness and the blazing stars above the faintest emblems of the full measure of his glory. Remember a song we used to sing, I Stand in Awe of You? You're beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. I stand in awe of you. Stand in awe of you. So Peter opens, first by anchoring us to our identity as children of God. Elect exiles, born again, to a living hope, a guaranteed inheritance, a secure salvation. And then he starts to bring home the implications that because of this new relationship, we've got new responsibilities. And that living like Jesus means that we will guard our minds, we'll change our behavior, and we'll grow in our, in our awe. And so as we do this, we regularly get to punch holes in the darkness. And as we close, I want to just give you a little illustration, because you might be wondering, is it worth it? trying to live this life? Is it worth it? How much impact can a tiny little group of people, the followers of Christ, percentage-wise to population around the world, it seems like we're, we're up against greater odds. How great of an impact can a tiny group of people have in the world? I'm, I'm, I'm going to grab an illustration, stealing it from, uh, uh, just stealing it, borrowing it, taking it. Stephen Prothero's book, God is Not One. And he talks about the incredible impact of this little nation called Israel, the people that we call Jews. Did you know that there are only 14 million of them today? Five million of them live in Israel, approximately, and another five million approximately live in the U.S., a ton of them in New York City, and the rest are spread all around the world. And Prothero says that most people living today of the seven billion on the planet have never actually met a Jewish person face-to-face. -face. They don't know any individual Jews and yet they have an incredible impact on the earth. He says this, this tiny religion has wielded influence far out of proportion to its numbers. So he's an American, and he says, you know what? In the U.S., they have influenced politics, education, the Supreme Court, and a bunch of Fortune 500 companies. But their greatest influence is actually in popular culture. So popular culture is what we listen to, what we are entertained by. They have a huge influence. He says almost every major Hollywood studio was founded by Jews, as well as NBC and CBS. If you do a Google search and just look up Jewish actors, Jewish singers, Jewish comedians, it's amazing what comes up. So actors like Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, or Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jane Seymour, singers like Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, Bette Midler, Harry Connick Jr. 
More than any other art form, however, comedy has been shaped by Jewish comedians. The list, there's hundreds actually, but just listen to these. Way back, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, Milton Berle, Jack Benny, George Burns, a few older people in the room remember those names. Woody Allen, Seth Rogen, Joan Rivers, Jerry Seinfeld, Sarah Silverman, John Stewart, and the list goes on and on and on and on. They make up less than 2% of the U.S. population, and yet they account for the vast majority of the working comics in the U.S. They have claimed, did you know this, 25% of all Nobel Prizes since 1901. They're less than like half a percent of the world's population, and yet they've won 25% of the Nobel Prizes. And then he finishes this way. Whenever anyone anywhere puts on a pair of Levi's, sips a cappuccino from Starbucks, spends a night at a Hyatt, powers up a Dell computer, or performs a Google search, they have a Jewish entrepreneur to thank. Can a tiny group of people living on the margins of society still have a massive impact on the world? You better believe they can. And so when you were called into the family of God, you were called into a family of lamp lighters. You were called to punch holes in the darkness. And Peter writes to encourage us, never give up. Never give up. Despite the darkness, despite the trials, the tests, the suffering, despite the fact that we're aliens and strangers, we're exiles, guard your minds, change your behavior, and grow your awe. When you stand with me, I want to pray for you. So, Lord Jesus, such practical, tangible words. All the theory, all the doctrine, all the theology that we had in the last three weeks, anchoring us in our identity as dearly loved children of God. The fact that before the foundation of the world that you had us in your mind and you made a plan for our salvation, that you called us, you called us to yourself, that you put somebody in our path, you put somebody in our life, thank you God that you did, to tell us about the love of God. And when we heard your word, our heart was stirred, our heart was warmed, and we said, yes, Lord, I need it. But it didn't end there, Lord. You want us to take all that good teaching and put it into practice. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women, the boys and girls listening to this message. As we go out into our week, may we be men and women who punch holes in the darkness. May we be a light for you in this community. May we reflect the image of our Heavenly Father, like father, like son, like father, like daughter, children of the High King. May it be known. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.